following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So the text is Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, and the uh, title of the message today is Bold Investments, Bold Investments. And it reads, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes and the journey that we've taken along with the preacher. Um, Because the truth is we often share many of the same questions. uh, Questions that even feel almost taboo to us to even dare to ask of you. And yet they still haunt us. We thank you that through the power of your word and the guidance that it gives that um, you shed light where there is darkness and understanding where there is ignorance. And so we pray for that instructive work to be done in our hearts through your word and through the work of the Holy Spirit as we submit ourselves to this teaching and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Most of us know this guy Prometheus, the Greek god from our days in school when we learned about Greek mythology. And we basically know him as the Greek god who stole fire from the gods, from heaven, and gave it as a gift to mankind. And the story of Prometheus, though, is actually much deeper than that. It's much deeper than a simple origin story that explains how people were able to harness the power of fire. Because in the original story, Prometheus actually gave three things to mankind. The first gift that he actually gave to mankind is that he took away our sense of our own mortality. In other words, in his mercy, he gave people a forgetfulness about our inevitable death so that we wouldn't have to go through life crushed by a fear of it. He also gave mankind as a second gift uh, these hopes to reach beyond our limitations and to even imagine ourselves to be limitless beings that could accomplish anything that we wanted to. The, The problem with these hopes, though, that Prometheus gave humans is that these were sort of um, aimless hopes. They were blind hopes. They didn't really direct us to a clear, knowable purpose. It was more like an aimless hunger or ambition that caused us to crave for something greater than what we already had, but really without much focus or clarity about what the ultimate goal of these cravings were. 
It's in this context of the first two gifts that we have to understand the third gift of fire. Because by giving us fire, he gave us the tool that we needed to accomplish our hopes and our dreams. In essence, that fire represents technology, the ability and the power to achieve our dreams. Now, these Greek myths were not just fairy tales that were passed down from generation to generation for entertainment value alone. These were stories that attempted to explain the human condition. And what's interesting is when we retell the Prometheus myth in our modern day, we tell it in a very positive tone as a story of triumph, the triumph of humanity, stealing fire from the gods. But the ancient Greeks that originated this story, interestingly enough, told the story of Prometheus not as a story of triumph, but a story of tragedy. It was a tragedy to the Greeks. Why? Because the story of Prometheus is the story of lost humanity, living in denial of our mortality, acting like gods, using our ingenuity and technology to chase after aimless dreams, pursuing hopes that we don't even fully understand what they're about. And it's interesting to me how similar the conclusion of the Greeks was to the conclusion of the preacher who is on his own journey to find the meaning of life under the sun. As the preacher has been saying through these pages of Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity into our hearts, and yet we struggle to understand his ways. and We struggle to find the meaning of life. Life is like a vapor. Every time you think you've figured it out, it just disappears like you're trying to grab smoke with your fist. On his journey to understand life's meaning, the preacher repeatedly harps on the frustrations and, e and the, even the brutality of life under the sun. For every step forward that you fight for in life, it feels like you're forced to take two steps backward. What you plant eventually gets uprooted. Peace ends in war. Love ends in hate. Laughter ends in mourning. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11 says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. In other words, what the preacher is saying is that there is this sort of cruel randomness that, to life that, that seems to laugh at our desperate attempts to find happiness and meaning in life. And as a result of all of this, it's hard not to feel somewhat pessimistic, if not even hopeless and fatalistic about life. You know, you, you try to find some greater purpose some higher meaning to it all. And all you see is chaos. All your hard efforts, all of your dreams dashed by one random act of chance, one cruel stroke, and your life takes a turn for the worse. It really feels like this is what Ecclesiastes is building up to, doesn't it? Is 
we should all just die, you know? Like, life is not worth living. It's just so miserable. But what's interesting is that's not how the book of Ecclesiastes actually ends. It ends in a rather hopeful note, in an optimistic note. Instead of a depressing, hopeless, fatalistic tone. And it starts in chapter 11. And it begins in chapter 11 with a rather unusual command. In verse 1 it says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now, I want to confess that when I first encountered these verses as a high school student, I was utterly confused by them. They made absolutely no sense to me. I, people would say it as if they knew what they were talking about. And I say, amen to that, cast your bread on the waters. But what I always pictured were these slices of bread floating on a river, getting soggy. And what the verse is saying is, if you wait a really long time, that bread is eventually going to find its way back to you. And I was thinking, why in the world would I want that disgusting bread to come back to me after floating on this water for many days? And why in the world are we supposed to do this? I mean, is this something that ancient people used to do as some kind of tradition? Um, what would be the possible reason for throwing bread into water? It just made no sense to me. Um, clearly, I was missing something. Now, what historians tell us, though, is that when it says, cast your bread on the waters, what they most likely think it means is that it is a figurative way of talking about um, merchant trade by sea. Okay, I, I know you're like, what? But that's actually what historians believe casting your bread on the waters is. It's saying your bread represents that which you worked hard for, what you've earned, your treasure. This is the fruit of your hard work. And it says, take that bread, and it says, cast it to the sea. The picture is really of a king who sends his treasure, his most prized possessions, away on ships to seek far-off lands to trade with. Now, one of the things that every historian notes about this metaphor is that the shipping trade was incredibly risky in ancient times. In fact, testament to that truth is the fact that ancient shipwrecks uh, litter the ocean floor, especially in places like the Mediterranean Sea, as evidence of how dangerous maritime uh, trade was in those days. And so you would send off your ships with all of your worldly possessions, and they would be gone for months. And you have no idea what's happened to them. You don't know if they were lost at sea or if they ever made it to these distant ports. And so day after day, week after week, you would just look across the horizon of the waters to see if your ships are returning. And then maybe, just maybe, one day you see them pulling back into dock. And when you, your ships return, the return on that investment would be immeasurable. You would now be an incredibly rich person because they have brought treasures from a distant land that were worth unbelievable riches. By using this metaphor of sh the shipping trade, the preacher is telling us, I think, basically this. Don't let the risks in life get the better of you. 
whether it's a near brush with death or enduring some other kind of crisis or tragedy, I think none of us can go through life unscathed from these kind of experiences. And the problem is they can paralyze us with fear. This life will knock you down enough to make almost every one of us live our lives governed by fear. And the preacher acknowledges we do live in a dangerous world. He doesn't sugarcoat that. Life is filled with risks and even disappointments. But we mustn't let fears control our lives. In other words, the wise approach to life is not to minimize as much risk as possible, allowing fear to dictate our life decisions, but to embrace the risk and live a life of courageous investment. Now, that sounds great. And some of you are saying amen to that. But I really want you to pause for a moment, and I want to challenge you that for both you and I, our lives are ruled by our fears a lot more than we're willing to admit. I think all of us would like to see ourselves as proactive decision makers who make choices toward the things we want, moving toward positively toward goals. But the reality is for most of us, we make choices avoiding things based on our fears. We don't really move toward things. We move away from things that we're trying to get away from. And if you would just pause for a minute and think about decisions you've made even this week, I guarantee you that a lot of those choices were made out of fears, at least partially so. In our parenting seminars, we've been addressing this, addressing this issue of how much parenting these days is driven by our fears. You know, if you can't see it clearly, his mom's wrapping the kid in bubble wrap. Um, I think that's the truth, is so much parenting is driven by fear. And so instead of teaching our children how to courageously represent Jesus in our world, we teach them that the world is a very dangerous and evil place. And we instill fear in them of the world. And I just, you can go across the board. What we eat, the diet we adopt, why we exercise, the way we parent, the way we spend our money, all of these choices are heavily influenced by fear. You know, I don't want to die of a heart attack. I don't want my kids to get messed up like that. What happens if there's another downturn in the economy? But one of the most powerful expressions of faith is courage. What do I mean by that? Why does faith lead to courage? It's because when we say faith, we're talking about trust in a sovereign God that loves and cares for us. And so it's this belief that ultimately God is my shepherd who is watching over me. Now listen, as the preacher himself affirms, this doesn't mean that you're going to go through life unscathed. It doesn't mean that as a Christian, you'll never experience pain or suffering. You will. There are risks, even to the person who follows God and believes in Him and puts his trust in Him. But it means that nothing can touch you unless God allows it. And that ought to give great comfort to the believer. 
And I just want you to envision what God could do through you. If the choices that you made in your life were driven primarily by courageous faith rather than fear. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 7 says, Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. As the great prophet Isaiah confesses, because he knew God was with him, because God was his help, even in the face of great difficulty and opposition, he said, I will have the courage to remain unshakable and unwavering in my determination to stay the course and not be afraid because I know that my God is worth me. Verse 2 gives further explanation to this courageous life when it says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, this is also a pretty confusing verse to the modern reader. But really, the picture that is being painted here is of taking your treasures and spreading them out. In other words, don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's basically the message of diversification. It's saying, listen, you don't know at the end of the day which investment is going to turn out for you. And so spread your wealth as much as possible. Um, I think there's a lot in wisdom in that. You know, um, sometimes we hear these stories of these really great Christians that did amazing things for God. And it almost seems like when you hear about these kind of stories of these great men and women of faith, that God had just singled them out for greatness. And they just ended up living these anointed lives that it was like they were like King Midas. You know, anything they touched turned to gold. And they just experienced one success after another. Now, listen, there may actually be a few Christians that live charmed lives like that. But the truth is if you read the biographies of these great men and women who did great things for God, that usually is not how their story unfolded. For every success, they had a number of horrible failures. They were not immune to failure. But I think what made these men and women stand out was that they were not afraid to fail. They were not afraid to attempt great things for God. And when the failure happened, they weren't devastated. They just went on to something else. They diversified their spiritual portfolio. And they allowed their imagination to dream big dreams for the kingdom of God. Of what else is it that God could do through me? But this verse is not only talking about diversification. It is also talking about generosity. When it's talking about to seven, to even eight. The message there is don't be stingy in committing your resources. But give generously to the needs that you see around you. We can say this. If fear leads to selfish hoarding, courageous faith leads to generous, sacrificial giving. In other words, it's only when I really trust that God has my back that I can really be generous with my resources, my time, my energy, my money. It takes faith to have that kind of courage to be selfless with the things that I possess. The preacher contrasts this picture of bold investing and generous giving with a warning in verses 3 to 4. 
He says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. The picture that the preacher is painting here for us is that of a farmer staring endlessly into the sky. And he feels the winds gaining speed. And he sees the clouds forming in the heavens. And day after day, the farmer does the same thing. He goes out and he stands in the fields and asks himself, is this the day to plant? But he feels the wind and he sees the clouds and he talks himself out of it. And so the sad thing is this farmer never plants his fields. And subsequently, he never gets to experience the joy of a harvest in his life. That's probably one of the saddest things in the world, huh? A farmer who never experiences a harvest because he was always too afraid to plant. The point couldn't be clearer. You can spend your entire life waiting for the perfect conditions to take action and in the end never have done anything of significance in your life because that moment, frankly, never came. The conditions were never right. And the truth is that some of us are living our lives this way. We're always making excuses for why the timing isn't right or blaming others or external circumstances for our lack of action. But in the end, the truth is, it's our own fears that paralyze us from taking any bold risks in our life. The preacher acknowledges it in verse 3. He says, listen, storms are going to happen. And frankly, some seasons, they're going to ruin your crops. Trees will fall. They're going to fall here. They're going to fall there. And whatever they fall and land, they're going to destroy whatever they hit. Trees are going to fall. This is just the reality of life. There are risks in life. But we can't let the fear of these realities rule the day or control our lives. That's one of the strong messages that he is giving here. You can live your entire life waiting for the perfect conditions to take action, always making excuses for your inaction. But at the end of the day, it's your own cowardice that caused you to never take a risk and do something bold for God. In verse 5, it says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You know, the preacher acknowledges God's ways are mysterious. You can't figure it out. Just when you think you've got God figured out, he does something utterly unexpected and you're all confused again. You just can't put him in a box and say, I know exactly how he's going to pull through in this situation. And he, in essence, says you've got to live with that mystery. You've got to accept that. But one of the things he does make is a pretty strong profession of faith. It is God who controls everything. It is God that makes everything happen. We just don't understand his ways. We can't. There's a mystery there. You know, it's like two people praying for rain and not praying for rain in the same community. I mean, this is the stuff that God has to deal with, you know? Like, we have a softball tournament. My crops are dying. <laughs> so who does God answer? The softball tournament or the farmer? 
You see, the way that God governs his universe is so much more complex than we could ever possibly wrap our mind around. And in our puny little understanding, we just get angry when he doesn't do everything we want, right? And say, are you even there, God? I don't even trust you anymore. I don't know if you're there. The preacher says, listen, how can you possibly fathom God's ways about why he answers some prayers but doesn't answer others? Why sometimes he almost works miraculously and other times you cannot find him? It says God in his sovereign control of this universe is so much greater than your understanding of how it all comes together to make sense of the way that he governs it. But he closes with these words of faith once again. In the morning... Sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. In other words, in his final conclusion of it all, he says, listen, there are mysteries here beyond your understanding, and life has risks. There is no way around it. Anytime you attempt anything, There are risks associated with it. And God is not going to shelter you from all of those risks. You're going to take some hits, but be courageous and sow courageously without fear. Wherever the opportunity seems to arise, be generous in giving of your resources as you invest in his kingdom. And it will be God who will provide that harvest for you one day. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6-11, expresses the same sentiment with these words. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. You know, um, as I was preparing this message, thinking about my own faith journey that I've been on these 40-something years, I thought about how in every major life decision that I had to make, I almost always found myself at a fork in the road, having to choose between the road of faith and the road of fear. And the truth is that road of fear in those moments of decision always loomed large and terrified me. You've heard me share the story of the days when we first started having kids and Joy and Noel, who are, you know, one off to college and another one this coming year, were just infants being a resident doctor uh, and getting ourselves geared up to head to the mission field, to Africa as missionaries. And I remember these moments when I would just be so overcome with fear of my children. Like, 
How am I going to provide for them? How am I going to care for them as a missionary in Africa, just scrapping by, begging other people for money? How am I going to ever even think about, dream about a college education for these girls? I didn't know I was going to have three more after that, you know. <laughs> um, but that was a genuine fork in the road. And I got to be honest with you, it's so easy to wax eloquent about those days and go, oh, yeah, you know, those decisions. But I really didn't know in that moment if I was going to have the courage to uproot my family and head off to Africa. That, that temptation of just being a doctor in America was so great. Going, man, the life that I could have, you know, the things that I could possess if I just go this other road. You know, in 2007, our family underwent a crisis that we had never anticipated when the entire Ken country of Kenya exploded in post-election tribal violence. Thousands of people being killed and injured. People with machetes ripping people out of vehicles and hacking them and killing them. And while this was unfolding, I mean, you know, it was right there in our village. Every morning, we would wake up to the sound of automatic gunfire. Never even heard it in my life other than the movies. And it doesn't sound like the movies, you know? Just ta -ta 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 -ta, this staccato sound of automatic gunfire. And we just put all our, we stopped homeschooling them, made them all sit in the middle room where there was no exterior windows, and they just sat in a dark room playing games. We didn't tell our kids what was happening outside those walls. And I remember that for the first day of the violence, the Kenyans told the missionaries, don't come to the hospital because they're shooting right outside the hospital gates. And so we didn't go to the hospital. And we were just sitting there. But at some point, we were like, what's going on here, you know? Like, the Kenyan nurses are running the hospital, and the missionary doctors are huddled in their houses, scared to death. And so we're like, we got to go to the hospital. So we went to the hospital. And it was bizarre walking to the hospital toward the direction of the gunfire. And when pretty much everyone was evacuating out of the country, our mission agency asked us, are you guys going to go? And we got together as a mission base and we talked about it and said, you know, I, I don't know, should we go or not? And we ended up deciding to stay, you know, and said, we don't know what this post-election violence is going to lead to, but we're going to stay and care for these patients in this hospital. Now, I wish I could say that every time I chose that path, but there have been plenty of times in my life where I did choose the way of fear, of a difficult conversation that I knew I needed to have with someone, and I chickened out, of knowing that I was wrong and needed to admit it in order to restore this friendship, but I didn't have the courage to acknowledge my fault. There are plenty of times I've chosen the way of fear over the way of faith. And I am not talking about recklessness here, okay? I mean, if we all want to die in our 30s, it's very doable, okay? We can all do it. I am not talking, there is a place for wisdom, all right? I am not talking about recklessness here, okay? But what we are driving at here is there is just this fundamental stance in your life that you're going to choose of whether you're going to be governed by your fears or governed by your faith. And that is going to make all the difference in your destiny of the life that you ultimately choose for yourself. And I want 
you to just think about that this day. What would it mean for you to trust God and take some risks when it comes to your relationships, when it comes to your time, when it comes to your money? Even what I preached on last week, the courage to speak the truth in love and talk about that last 10% and have that difficult conversation with that person that you need to talk to instead of always being afraid of how they're going to react. What would it mean to have the faith to invest in the people in your life and share your faith with the people who don't know Jesus instead of always being so fearful that they're going to label you a Jesus freak so the days go by and you never testify to the name of Christ because the truth is you're completely in bondage to that fear of what other people think of you. And the truth is, years have gone by since you've ever shared your faith with anyone. You see, we're ruled by our fears a lot more than we acknowledge. What would it mean to actually be generous with your money? I mean, almost stupidly so, almost crazily so. To not pad your 401k, your Roth IRA to the maximum, but to say, you know what, a portion of this we're going to give to people in need. And we're going to do it to the point that maybe I'm almost wondering, are we going to have enough at retirement? But I'm just going to trust God to take care of us. Could you picture a life of faith like that? Listen, you can take my message today in so many wrong ways to just be this macho manning up kind of, you know, this, you know, testosterone-loaded faith of, you know, be a man, be a man, be a man, you know. Like, that's what you need to be. This is not about heroism or about personality even, being a risk taker. It's ultimately about faith that God is my shepherd and therefore I will fear nothing. And I will live this life of courage. And so I want to close with these words in Psalm 23 to center us in the message of faith. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, I will fear no evil. Your staff and your rod, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. The storms are there. They are. There is no guarantee that just because you're a Christian, you're going to be spared from them. To live a life following God does not mean that you get to live a charmed life, unscathed by the risks in a dangerous world. God in his loving care over you is going to allow some of this risk to touch you, and touch you painfully so. Touch you in ways that you may even begin to doubt his goodness in your life. But in the midst of life's uncertainties and the risks that surround us, the storm clouds looming in the sky, we're invited 
to a life of faith that expresses itself in courage to cast your bread upon the waters so that after many days it will return to you as a multiplied return on your investment. And I want to say that even though we are Christians, um, for many of us, living, following God for many years, I think the truth is we're actually governed by our fears a lot more than we really have the honesty to admit. And as a result of that, we live very selfish lives. Hoarding would be a better description rather than generosity. And the fear is you could end this life always waiting for the perfect set of circumstances to take action, and that moment never comes. And you end your life discovering that you have nothing to harvest, nothing to reap at the end of a life because the truth is you haven't invested in anything. You've just hoarded and hoarded out of fear. But when we really have that faith to trust that God is our shepherd, it's not about heroism. It's not about risk-taking per se. It's about faith. Trust in God. I just want to close with the words of this song by this Christian songwriter named Billy Sprague who wrote this song called The Blessing of the Fleet. I really like the, the way it captures what I've been preaching today. It says, The ships have been waiting too long in the harbor. A fair wind is calling the fleet to set sail. Ice on the moorings is finally melted. Forgotten's the frost and the winter's last gale. The fishermen come with their nets newly mended and gather their families there on the shore. Children and fathers fall equally silent while sweethearts and wives wish for one, one minute more. Then drawing together and bowing their heads for the ones who are sailing away, the journey is worth every danger they dread. So they stand by the sea and they pray. May your nets be filled, your compass true. May the wind and the wave be your friend. May you stand the storm and the hand of the Lord bring you safely to harbor again. Anchors away, let the canvases billow as full as the hearts of the ones left behind who watch till the last sail sinks over the horizon then chart their own course through an ocean of time. Many are waiting and many must travel. And someday we will all sail over the rim. For every hand on the helm helps the calling. Some will be fishers and some fishers of men. And that's the blessing that I pray over us for you, our congregation. That you would let your ships sail and live courageous lives and embrace the risk with courage and see what God could do through each one of us. Just take a moment to pray and our worship team is going to lead us in a song as we prepare our hearts to take part in this Lord's table. Just pray for a minute, will you?